It's Thursday, June 8, 2023. Avoid going outside unless you absolutely have to. A smoky wake-up call for our climate crisis. Saudi Arabia to cut production again to boost oil prices. Plus, we cannot say conclusively what happened at this point. What we absolutely can say is that the damage to the Ukrainian people and to the region will be significant. Ukraine dams destruction, unleashes massive flooding and ecological disaster. All of those damn disasters and more straight ahead. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Wildfires have been happening for a long time uh, before we started talking about the climate crisis. So, you know, I want to make sure that the science is settled before we completely turf our economy and uh, flush any innovation we have down the toilet. Good plan, Fox News. Take your time. Everything's working out great. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, don't get carried away with yourself. We want to make sure that the science is settled before we take any action. And how many billions of dollars we spend until the science is settled cleaning up the mess, well, we'll worry about that later, I guess. Yeah, that's just more nonsense from Fox News. Go figure. What do you got for us today? Well, more than 55 million Americans are under air quality alerts, warning them to not go outside because of dangerous smoke from wildfires in Canada. Canada is suffering one of the worst starts to its wildfire season ever recorded, fueled by unseasonably hot and dry conditions. More than 400 active wildfires have burned 15 times the average acreage for this time of year. But is the science settled? Yes, it is. More than 10,000 people have been forced to evacuate their homes. Here in the U.S., a broad swath of the Northeast has been blanketed with heavy smoke. New York City officially recorded the worst air quality in the world, with officials urging residents to stay indoors, close windows and doors, and use air purifiers. Well, let's not take any rash actions here. Wildfire smoke is especially dangerous for children, seniors, and those with respiratory ailments but it is risky for everyone. Wildfire smoke contains toxic contaminants from everything the fire has burned. So be sure to check the air quality in your area and wear a high-quality mask outdoors. Or at least once the science has settled. And yes, this is what climate change looks like. Human-caused climate change is increasing the frequency and intensity of wildfires and creating longer fire seasons around the world. Stanford University researchers found that the number of Americans who experience extreme smoke days has risen 27-fold over the last decade. In a recent study, scientists concluded that almost 40% of the land burned by wildfires in the western U.S. and Canada can be traced back to carbon pollution released by the world's largest fossil fuel and cement companies. Hmm. In other news, in Ukraine, destruction of a major hydroelectric dam has unleashed massive flooding 
devastating and widespread environmental disaster, forcing tens of thousands to evacuate from fast-moving, polluted floodwaters. Russia and Ukraine blamed each other for the destruction of the Kahovka Dam. U.S. intelligence officials say it is unclear who is responsible. But the flooding has caused widespread ecological damage that officials say could forever change ecosystems. 150 tons of oil stored inside the hydroelectric power plant were swept into the floodwaters. Mm. The reservoir also cooled the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. But the head of the U.N. International Atomic Energy Agency, Rafael Grossi, said the plant's water reserves should hold for now. Our current assessment is that there is no immediate risk to the safety of the plant. The reactors have been shut down for many months. It is estimated that this pond will be sufficient to provide water for cooling for some months. We can only hope. Elsewhere, oil prices spiked this week after the world's top exporter, Saudi Arabia, announced it will cut production further next month in an effort to prop up oil prices amid sagging global demand. The Biden administration, Environmental Protection Agency, announced $115 million in new funding to repair and upgrade the deteriorating water system in Jackson, Mississippi. Thank you. Interior Secretary Deb Holland announced a 20-year moratorium on oil and gas leasing within 10 miles of the Chaco Culture National Historic Park in New Mexico. And finally, in Congress, far-right House Republicans tried to punish Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy over the debt ceiling deal he struck with President Biden by sabotaging their own bill, which was supposed to block new pollution rules for natural gas stoves. Brilliant. The science is settled on that. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President, Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch in New York City. The Reverend Dr. William Barber II is a leading prophetic voice for social and economic justice in this country. A powerful public speaker, legendary organizer, teacher, and author, he's a very sought-after interview guest, and I am thrilled we will be talking to him on this week's show about his work and his insights for what is needed from American public religion at such a time as this. With this week's episode, we start a new era for State of Belief. We're partnering with Religion News Service, the leading religion journalism organization in the country for distribution and expansion of the show. We hope the important conversations we produce each week will reach new audiences and contribute even more to the search for strategies and solutions to the very real challenges facing our nation. We have so much planned for the weeks and months ahead. The State of Belief is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, thank you for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, today is the day. 
So please do an information on how you can help keep this show going is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. Now, before I introduce my first guest, I'm afraid I need to share some very sad news. On Wednesday, June 7th, the longtime original host of State of Belief, Interfaith Alliance President Emeritus, Reverend Dr. C. Welton Gaddy, passed away at the age of 81. Welton started this program in 2006 and hosted his last episode on May 21st, 2022. That wasn't the plan. He had hoped to be back. Welton loved State of Belief. He loved the conversations he conducted for it. He loved hearing from listeners, and he didn't feel ready to step down. But with his beloved wife, Judy, facing serious health challenges, Welton set everything else aside to become her full-time caregiver, hoping things would get better, but they didn't. Welton himself was struck down by poor health earlier this year, and the recent months have been very difficult. Supported by his beloved faith community at Northminster Baptist Church in Monroe, Louisiana, a congregation he flew home to pastor most weekends, even as he served out his 17-year tenure at the helm of Interfaith Alliance in Washington, D.C. There's little we do around here that hasn't been influenced by the example and inspiration of Welton Gaddy, and that holds true across a wide swath of the interfaith landscape. He will be deeply missed. And now to my guest. The Reverend Dr. William Barber II is a leading voice for faith-based social and economic justice. Many Americans first got to know him as leader of the inspiring Moral Mondays movement in North Carolina. Today, he's president of Repairers of the Breach and co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. He's also a pastor and founding director of the Center for Public Theology and Public Policy at Yale Divinity School, where he's also a professor. Bishop Barber is the author of four books. Most recently, We Are Called to Be a Movement. What a list. Good morning. I think that people who have seen you on the national stage do not understand how the pastoral and the one, you know, basically loving people as uh, as a religious figure, as a follower of Jesus, how that informs why you do all the work that you do. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it feels to me really important that you have this pastoral grounding. Can you talk a little bit about that and how it's connected to the prophetic? Well, you know, I think about that in a number of different ways. You know, pastors, if you look at it from a biblical perspective, are called to take care of the sheep as under-shepherds for Jesus, who is the shepherd. But when you care for sheep, you have to care for them in all of their ways. You have to care when they cry, when they're fearful, when they uh, are hunted and hounded by forces around them. You have to try to, if you will, lead them into green pastures and, 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 and besides still waters, you got to walk with them through the valleys and the shadows of death. You know, that's part of what pastoring does. So a pastor really uh, 
right is sensitized to what the people are going through. Um, when Ezekiel, who was a prophet pastor, if you will, the first thing the Lord told him to do uh, before he could go out and challenge the injustices of society, uh, you know, over in Ezekiel 22, he says he, he, he challenges and says that the um, the um, uh, politicians had become like wolves. And but what was worse was that there were a group of priests, i.e., pastors, who had chosen the side of the powerful and the mm. wolves. Rather than caring about the people, and because of that, the whole society was out of whack. Because of that, there was injustice and extortion, and 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 then he says later on, God says, I look for someone who would stand in the gap. But before all of that, God told Ezekiel, lay down among the people for seven days, and the imagery there is that you you get your authority to speak against the injustices of the world will come out of your positioning with the people. I mean, I, I, let me be among the many who are taking this moment to congratulate you on your ministry. I, I know that that is a, uh, a road that is hard, gratifying, um, beautiful, and, and, and terribly um, it just filled with emotion because you are living with the emotion of your people, of your congregation. So congratulations on all those years of ministry. You come to this with a prophetic vision and a pastoral care. Where did you get that? Where would you say if you went, you know, looked back on your life and said, when was the first time I kind of began to see this, this with the eyes that I have that are continue to guide me today. Can you just bring us back a little bit into the formation of Bishop Barber? Well, I was born on August 30th, 1963, two days after the March on Washington. My father was scheduled to be in Washington, D.C., but did not go because the doctors said that my mother would uh, deliver, and she did, in fact, go into labor. Uh, on the 27th, and then they stopped. The labor pains kind of stopped. Now, the running um, joke in my family was that I said, uh, let's see how this march on Washington goes before I come into the world. <laughs> <laughs> on the 27th. And, you know, when I, after I was born, 15 days later, uh, racists were blowing up babies in Sunday school. Mm. When the 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 uh, uh, Birmingham, the Birmingham at the 16th Street Baptist Church, and later I would learn that my father, who was a pastor, uh, my mother wrestled deeply with that. In other words, what should be uh, his role? Uh, I was just a child when they made a decision as a baby to come back to the South, come back to the South as a pastor. Uh, he was called and asked would he come back and help desegregate schools because even though it was 63 and the Brown decision had happened in 54, schools in the South were still segregated. And my father made a pastoral decision to do that, to come back. So in some ways, I was born into the movement and into a family that made a decision from the perspective of being a pastor, being a preacher, 
because my father had gone to Indianapolis, trained at Butler Butler College and a Christian theological seminary. And later on, I would read um, his final paper that he wrote in seminary, where he talked about how he had to make these decisions of where he would use his life based on the calling and not just on a career. Mm. Mm. I grew up in my home was where people would come, uh, people in the community that were fighting for labor rights and standing against police brutality and dealing with or trying to desegregate the school. So as a kid, I was around that all the time. I was around that all the time. And I saw in my father that you could not separate Jesus from justice, Jesus from having a deep concern for what was not just happening 700 miles from you or 70 miles from you, but what was happening right in your immediate area. You know, my father did most of his ministry in eastern North Carolina. It's not a media area. It's not somewhere where the cameras were there. So I learned, too, that this work, you should be doing it, not because you get notoriety, but because you have a sense of calling and a sense of anointing uh, to do this work. I think so for my father is one of the first place. The second place is when I went to seminary, I had the opportunity to uh, study under people like Dr. William Turner, who's mm-hmm. a hematologist at Duke. And one of the things Dr. Turner taught in some of his uh, writings was that um, you can call yourself whatever you want to call or name your salvific experience, saved, born again, washed in the blood, uh, uh, baptized by fire. He said, but if whatever happens does not produce a quarrel with the world's injustices, then your claim of Christian spirituality is terribly suspect. And he was both a professor and a pastor as well. It was also in those days that I got to um, uh, uh, study Paul Tillich, you know, and his questions, and when Paul Tillich says, you can claim everything about what you believe is your God, but really your God is whatever you claim when you feel the threat of non-being. But Tillich Mm -hmm. also wrote a lot about what he had to do in the face of Hitler and the injustice and how, why, you know, he could not be silent uh, on matters of, of, of injustice. And why, while our theology has to deal with and address the various um, of non-being, um, you know, I met Herzog, who was a professor. Wow. About God walk and God talk. That we have to have more than God talk, God walk. <laughs> You know, I was had a chance to study under people like Cedric Lincoln, great Christian sociologist, and he wrote a little book um, called The Continuing American Dilemma that was in addition to um, Marty L's book on the American, where he talked about the difference between Christianity and Americanity. Required mm. uh, to, to challenge the Americanity that attempts to subvert put the flag over the scriptures. <laughs> oh, well, we, you know, don't we, don't we see some of that right now? I mean, with Christian nationalism and, you know, people, people waving Jesus banners as they attack the Capitol 
and you know try to hunt down legislators i mean it, that that's a real thing that's right and i think we uh he's even more today on what he talks about the last couple of things about was interestingly enough my grandmother helped shape and now she was not a pastor she was one of these his mothers in the church but on some weekends she would get up and uh, I would watch her put on an old apron and then she would put some cloths in that apron she would put a bottle of oil she would some, take some money and pin it to her and one um, time she was doing that and I said grandmama where are you going she said I'm going to do my Christian duty so what do you mean your Christian duty she said boy I'm going to hope somebody now, I, I knew that I didn't correct her. I thought her grandma was off. I held it because, if I could mean, you just didn't talk back to old people. But later on, I learned that her theology was, practically, that when I go to people's houses as a Christian, if they need their house clean, she would take those rags and clean it. If they need a little piece of money because they were poor, she'd put something in their hand. If they needed prayer because they were struggling with sickness, she'd take out her anointing oil and anoint them. In a sense, she was helping, but she was also hoping. Mm. What, what What was her name? What was your grandmother's name? I want to lift up her name. Lettuce Ann Keys. That was mm. her name. Lettuce, L-E-T-T-I-C-E, Ann Keys, uh, Robinson Moore. She was married uh, to two preachers in her lifetime. Both of them died. One was my grandfather died in the in the forties, and then her second husband died from the pressures of the depression and, mm. and working and whatnot. But my grandmother was said she was hoping someone. And then I just love that to in fact help people and to be in their midst is a way of producing hope. Is a just, way of, that is of hope and lift, give, giving people hope. So I think those are kind of the three areas, my seminary training, my early walk with my father, the practicality mm-hmm. of my grandmother. And then lastly, the first church I pastored mm-hmm. in, uh-huh. in, in, in Martinsville, Virginia. I hadn't been there hardly any time. And we found out that a company in that community had been bringing in at night on, on trucks toxic waste. Putting barrels of it out less than 7,500 feet from the back of homes in that community. And we, we, we had to challenge that. I was a pastor. I found out that people were, were getting sick, that the local company there had blocked the union rights of the people. I had members that would work 30-some years, and they would get $3 for every year they worked as their retirement or watch. And many of them would die uh, not long after they finished work because they worked in the textile mill. And the company had done everything it could to challenge them having union rights. And right in that space, standing over some of those caskets and burying people and, 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 and seeing the pain and the tears, it was made clear to me that there's no way you could be a pastor and have an incarnate presence, if you will, in a community and ignore the injustices that were surrounding mm-hmm. My grandmother was a theologian. She was why I ever came to I am so glad we can lift her up today.
Can you give me a sense right now where you stand and all the work that you do? Where are we going as a country? How, where do you see the movement or the movements um, that are afoot, both for good and for, I'll use the word, evil? Yeah. I think we have a great tension right now. Mm. I'm worried about the country. And it's one of the reasons why I'm trying to commit myself with many others to this work of, of um, what we call bringing into existence a third reconstruction. And, you know, in this country, the first reconstruction post-slavery was led in middle sense by preached moral figures who said we have to do more than just set people free and end the war of, of the Civil War. We have to engage in active transformation of the country. We have to reshape our constitutional focuses, particularly uh, in state houses. We have to address the, 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 the vestiges of slavery and racism and in, in, in policy ways, and so you had, you know, those who had been the abolitionists became the reconstructionists. Now we also know that that reconstruction uh, that said we're going to provide education for people and voting rights and, and, and basic wages was attacked viciously by those who claimed that they were here to redeem the country and make it great again and mm. back to its rightful place of being under white control. And so the first reconstruction was torn apart by violence and political uh, manipulation. Uh, then we have a second reconstruction, 1954, the Brown decision uh, said separate but equal is unconstitutional, but also we had in that time frame the, uh, uh, more and more, uh, some seek in 54, but I even see the beginnings of the second reconstruction rooted in the social gospel movement in the mm -hmm. 1900s and, the, and, and, and that began to challenge uh, party. Uh, and while some of the social gospel didn't say a lot about race per se, it was so powerful that it challenged Theodore Roosevelt, made him in some ways do his bull speech in, in, uh, in mm -hmm. way up and see the pulpit as a bully pulpit, the, the presidency as a bully pulpit. It, uh, Frances Perkins took her social gospel teachings right on into the White House as labor secretary and pushed Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And then, you know, there was a big pushback. Uh, Kevin Cruz talks about it in his book, One Nation Under God, that where they actually, the, the corporations of this country uh, went out and hired uh, preachers uh, to to take over Christian pulpits and to, mm. and to reshape theology in some kind of warped form of Calvinism that basically said, if you're good, you'll be rich. If you're bad, you'll be poor. So therefore, you don't need policies to address poverty. People just need to do better uh, morally. And so there was a pushing back. But then you get the civil rights movement. And you get you know, Dr. King and so many others who, 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 who began to challenge racism and sin, not just as a, fair, a policy failure, but as sin. And so from, from the death of Emmett Till in uh, 55 and then... Uh, the standing up of Rosa Parks and right on through to the civil rights movement. Uh, you get out of that movement, you get Medicaid expansion and focuses on wages and unions and, and voting rights and civil rights led by clergy who said these issues are not just political. I, I never, I ask people, don't ever just start, for instance, with Dr. King, but I have a dream, start with his first sermon in Montgomery. Where he says, if we are wrong, the prophets are wrong. 
if we're wrong, Jesus was wrong. If we're wrong, Amos was wrong. He 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 said that this work towards civil rights was not just a political. That fundamentally, racism is a form of idolatry and self-worship, uh, and and that it had to be challenged. It was not of God. And you know, then in his in his last sermon, uh, he says the night before he was shot. It's all right to talk about long robes and, and honey and the streets paved with gold over yonder, but people need some clothes and some housing in the slums down here. And nothing would be more tragic than for us to turn back now. And so we have these two reconstructions. I think right now we're in the middle of a third reconstruction. On the one hand, you have an aggressive, uh, uh, mean-spirited, uh, if you will, push backwards. And, and once again, we see what we saw in slavery, and we see what we saw in Jim Crow area is an attempt to hijack the faith and wrap it around injustice and make the injustice right. And so you see, for instance, the so-called religious nationalists who call themselves uh, evangelicals. My good friend, uh, 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 Jim, um, you know him well, he'll come to me in a minute, but he talks about how the, the emphasis on white evangelism is more on white, but I think even beyond the race, what concerns me is this notion that so-called evangelicals, which I get bothered by because I'm an evangelical, but I'm an evangelical rooted in Luke 418, not in saying that evangelicalism is being against gay people, against abortion, for tax cuts, for guns, and for a particular party called the party. That's not evangelicalism. <laughs> That is another attempt to hijack the faith and use the faith in the service of injustice and meanness and racism and, and homophobia and, and, and xenophobia and all of those things. Right. That's one hand. And it's very serious. I mean, you saw how people attempted to, to put faith and religion as education for January 6th. They're unbelievable. Right, unbelievable. And how they're using it in so many other ways to justify so many other parts. But on the other hand, we have this rise. If you look, uh, and it's not just in the church, but, I, but in, for instance, the Poor People's Campaign, the National Call for Moral Revival, that's undergirded by the work we do at Repairs of the Breach. People are coming. Last June, June the 18th of last year, over 150,000, uh, millions online, over 25 religious denominations came together with the poor on Pennsylvania Avenue to say to this nation, for your sake, for the soul of this nation, address systemic poverty. Yeah. 40 million people in this country living in poverty. Fourth leading card that you must address racism, you must address ecological devastation, denial of health care, the war economy, and the false moral narrative of religious nationalism. So we're in a tension moment. Right. At the third of all, I'm very concerned because, as always, the false prophets have a lot of money yeah. and a lot of media. And sometimes the corporate media helps them rather than, than critiques them the way it should be. But as I move across this country and I see people from the hills of West Virginia to the delta of Mississippi to to California, to the Carolinas, to Kentucky and Kansas farmers and all over, there is something rising 
there's a there's a stirring in the valley of dry bones, if you will. Mm. A kind of resurrection of the spirit of justice and love and and, and Jesus and, and, and wanting to say we will not give up on the yeah. But I think I think that you know part of what you named, in addition to all of the the hopefulness, is that there we are up against a very well funded, coordinated, uh, and uh, intentional effort to wrest religion, take away religion um, from the people, and use it as a force for nationalism, for for violence. For greed, I mean, people are really. It, I, I think you're, you've named you named. We are we are at one of those moments where America is going to is going to make a decision, or a decision will be made for us. Coming up next, more with the Reverend Doctor William Barber II. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. And please make sure you subscribe to the Next Generation Podcast. So please go to stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, where religion and democracy meet. State of Belief Radio, twice every weekend on the Progressive Voices Network. Nine one one. What's your emergency? America's healthcare system is broken, and people are dying. Welcome to Code Whack, where we shine a light on America's callous healthcare system, how it hurts us, and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Brenda Gazar. This time on Code Whack. In honor of Pride Month, we're examining the pivotal role the LGBTQ community has played in advocating for healthcare reform. Is it just a coincidence that most of California's single-payer bills have been introduced by lawmakers in the LGBTQ community? How can we further galvanize the community around this life-saving issue? To find out, we spoke to Michael Leidy, president of the Healthy California Now Coalition and former constituency director of Bernie 2020. Is it just a coincidence that most of California's single-payer bills have been introduced by lawmakers in the LGBTQ community? It's not a coincidence. Senator Sheila Kuehl, a former L.A. County supervisor, and Senator Scott Wiener. These are people who understand the lessons of AIDS, who understand that the LGBTQ community has to have guaranteed universal health care, or it's not going to happen, or it's going to be just a hugely difficult fight. And discrimination, I mean, now in Florida, any doctor can basically deny care to an LGBTQ person, just for no reason, just because they don't want to. Right. And so in any kind of system that doesn't guarantee health care and demands culturally competent, equitable care that's non-discriminatory is not going to be a system that works for LGBTQ people. Thank you, Michael Lighty. Get the full Code Wax story on ProgressiveVoices.com and on the PV app. Catch all our episodes by subscribing to Code Wax wherever you find your podcasts. This podcast is powered by Heal California, a nonprofit that uplifts the voices of those fighting for healthcare reform around the country. Until next time, stay healthy. Whether you're listening to Leslie Marshall each Tuesday through Friday or Brad Bannon each Monday, you can hear them from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on the Progressive Voices Network. 
Here's a sample of what you'll hear. Now, absent new, more ambitious climate policies, the world is headed for a magnitude of climate change that will put about 2 billion, with a B, people at risk of extreme heat by the end of the century. That's what a new study finds. Now, why does this matter? Well, if you uh, limit global warming to the Paris Agreement's target of 1.5 centigrade, which is 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit above pre-industrial levels, that would yield a five-fold reduction in the population exposed to unprecedented heat by the end of this century. Now, the nearly 2.16 Fahrenheit increase in global average surface temps to date has already knocked more than 600 million people out of the humid climate niche in which society has historically thrived. The researchers of the study would find that niche by looking at how humid population density varies with temperature and precipitation. The intrigue is that they find two peaks in population density, one associated with a mean annual temperature of about 55.4 degrees Fahrenheit, the other tied to more tropical climates, 80.6 degrees Fahrenheit as an example. And outside of these temperatures, conditions tend to be either too wet or dry or too hot or cold for high concentrations of people to thrive, the study states. So here's what they're saying, quote, the human climate niche niche shows how human population density varies with average temperature and average precipitation. That is Tim Lenton. He is the study lead author, director of the University of Exeter's Global Systems Institute. Further, he says, quote, it thus shows the temperature and rainfall levels we flourish most at and how population density drops moving away from those peaks. So if you read between the lines on this, researchers sought to shed light on the current and projected human toll of climate change. Unprecedented heat exposure is defined as having a mean annual air temp of 84.2 degrees Fahrenheit. Of note, the study found that if countries only meet existing emissions reductions based on current policies of warming to reach by 4.8% Fahrenheit, uh, the top five countries most vulnerable to unprecedented heat based on the number of people exposed would be India, Nigeria, Indonesia, the Philippines, and Pakistan. In other words, poorer nations. So rich people don't care about them. In this scenario, up to a third of humanity would be exposed to set. When you see like United States, you know, EU in that list, then you're going to get more attention and you're going to see more checks written and more research. Again, that's Leslie Marshall every Tuesday through Friday and Brad Bannon every Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on the Progressive Voices Network. This is State of Belief Radio on the Progressive Voices Network. Welcome back to State of Belief Radio. I'm Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. My guest is the Reverend Dr. William Barber II of the Poor People's Campaign. I'm going to take a moment right now uh, to make sure that everybody does know about the Poor People's Campaign and the repairs of the breach. Um, these are both area. These are both incredible organizations and movements that our listeners can get involved with, and I encourage everyone to do so because we need to show up for one another. And I'm, I'm going to just say something that I don't think everybody fully understands. This is a movement made up of all kinds of people from different religious backgrounds, from different um, races, from different uh, genders and, and sexual orientation. I so appreciate that you know, this is one of the things that is so remarkable about you, Bishop Barber, is that you you are not willing to throw some people under the bus for the benefit, um, for an immediate, you know, maybe perceived benefit. Uh, and I just think that 
you show us what organizing can be, but also organizing with integrity and with a sense of love for people. And I just want to say thank you for that. I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you how you're understanding the election and the ways that people of good faith and goodwill should be showing up not only for like who we select as as our uh, representatives, but also just how we show up um, to support people who need support in the election process. And, and I know that you um, and Reverend Liz have, have both been involved with that. So can you talk, talk a little bit about how you're understanding this election season we're about to go into and hopefully give us a good word because there's a lot of grimness out there. And, and there always has been. I think I would just take one second and say, you know, the redemption movement, for instance, in the 1800s was highly funded. Uh, it was, and, and, and when Frederick Douglass one time said, because I love the Christianity of Jesus, I must hate the religion of the slave master. He knew that that was highly funded. And when the Dred Scott decision came down that said a black man had no rights yeah. white people ever had to pay attention to, but Frederick Douglass, a person of faith, a month later said, as monstrous as this decision is, he said, I must tell you that every attempt to allow the, uh, the uh, abolition movement has only served to intensify our agitation. And and so at every point, um, uh, when those four little girls were killed in Birmingham, Dr. King did one of their funerals and talked about his heart. Sometimes life is hard as steel, but they speak to us from the grave and they tell us it wasn't just a bomber that killed them, but it was that everybody, black or white, who stood on the sideline and did not speak out uh, and did not challenge, also kill them. And so it's our time uh, to stand up and to be counted among those who care for love and justice and righteousness. And so you're very right that, you know, Kevin Cruz talks about the amount of money that was put in the, 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 the religious effort in the 1940s uh, to, to, to stop, if you will, the social gospel movement, to stop. So that we faced, what, part of what I want to say, Paul, to folks, is that we faced a lot of this before. And so what I'm saying to people of faith is time to be people of faith. Our faith was born for this. Faith is born for standing up in the tough times. And there's always a need for a prophetic moment. There's, you know, one of my professors taught me the prophets in the Bibles always rose and the priests weren't doing their job. And many of the prophets had were priests, but they stood up in times of crisis. And this is a time we must stand up, I think, for instance, if America addressed this issue of, of systemic racism and poverty and all of the death and the violence cut to poverty, what we saw in January 6th could be tiddlywinks because imagine 140 million people just losing hope, or 50 million of folks just losing hope and just saying, this country doesn't care. And two years ago, you know, we had a vote in the Congress on living wages. 49 Republicans and two Democrats said no to 50 million people getting a living wage, even though the minimum wage had not been increased since 2009. Uh, that's for 13 years now, for 14 years. We also saw voting rights being brought for, and 49 Republicans and two Democrats said no to restoring the Voting Rights Act in a democracy. Mm -hmm. But these are very troubling times. But we have to look at the fact always there's this call. To, to stand up. And here's some things we need to know about the election. First of all, when we look at American democracy right now, 
much of what we see happening is not because people are winning, but because they're cheating through redistricting, through voter suppression, that many of the, even when we look at something like the election of Trump, we're talking about 80,000 votes in three states that basically put him in office. Secondly, we are in a moment where poor and low-wealth people now represent 30% of the electorate, plus 30% of the electorate, and in battleground states where the margin of victory is between uh, 3 and 6%, over 40% of the electorate. Thirdly, we know that it, there's not a state in this country if 25% of poor and low-wealth people would be organized around an agenda to address systemic racism and pay a living wage and guarantee people health care and address the enormous unguarded sums of money we put in, still put into the war economy, that 25% could fundamentally shift every election. In fact, we have data now that shows that in North Carolina it's 19%. 19% of poor low-wealth voters who are already registered, who have not voted, who just said, I'm not, I don't care anymore because they don't see change and they don't have politicians coming and visiting them and talking about poverty and these issues. If they were to say whether they talk or not, we're going to stand up and participate. 19% of those who didn't vote could, re, could would overcome any marginal victory in the last two elections. In Georgia, is 7%. Florida is 4%. Michigan is 1%. What you're talking about here is these are communities who do not feel like politicians are paying attention to them. So they're sitting it out. But the potential here, if politicians were to take their concerns seriously, it could transform the election. And so what we have to build is a movement, because movements change everything. And it's normal electoral politics, but when you have a movement, and we have to remember, for instance, take the Edmunds Pettus Bridge and the movement that grew out of the church in 65. It wasn't an election year. Everybody who had been elected then had already said where they stood on the issue of of, of voter rights, even Lyndon Baines Johnson, the formulation. But the movement changed the atmosphere and the political mm-hmm. atmosphere up in the mm-hmm. country. And mm-hmm. they got passed in a non-election year what the politicians had already said they weren't going to do. What I'm saying is people of faith who, who understand, you know, faith of the mustard seed and who understand that there are these realities in the Bible, the, 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 the dry bones announcing the, 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 what Psalms 118 says, the stones that the builders rejected have now become the chief cornerstone. Well, we're in that moment. The poor and low-wealth people and their allies, religious and otherwise, make up a powerful rejected stone that can now be the chief cornerstone in the building of a new society. Mm-hmm. Many of the people who don't vote, well, I've gone all this country, we've done studies and critical data. The first reason is not voter suppression. It is nobody talks to us. Mm. Whether, it's, whether, it's in, whether it's in Harlem, Kentucky, when I spent time with people, or whether it's in El Paso, Texas, or in Ohio, the number one reason poor and low-wealth persons of any race and community color who don't vote, don't vote, because they said nobody cares about it. I've gone in community. That politician hasn't visited us, Democrat or Republican, in 30 years. I mm. went to Virginia meeting with women who every Tuesday sell tacos so they can get enough money in their community fund to help one another during their menstrual cycles afford the, 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 the um, uh, feminine things that they need. 
these women, some of them had sat out. They said, Madison, nobody cares about us. We're mm. going in those communities and saying, but wait a minute. What if the issue is not so much not whether they care about you, but, but that you have the power to reshape, to be the call of a new reality? What if you have the power to be like the Valley of Drabble? What if you have the power to bring a political res- uh, 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 Pentecost into reality? What if, mm. what if it's not about Democrat, Republican, but about our faith, about who we are as people, and people are beginning to see that. And I just left a tour with Bernie Sanders. Uh, he asked me to go on a three-state tour, South, South Carolina, uh, uh, North Carolina, Tennessee, to talk about living wages, moral issue, not as a Democrat, Republican, or liberal, or conservative, but to talk about what the scriptures say, what the Constitution say about the laborers worthy of their hire and paying people a living wage and, and loosing the chains of evil, which is what Isaiah says when you don't pay people a living wage. The audiences were packed with wow. folk, white folk, brown folk, Latino folk, gay folk, straight folk, young folk. And I was amazed at the number of young folk. And here I am, a preacher, talking to these I'm looking at these young faces and people saying that these young folk don't have spirituality, and I hear them saying, amen. <laughs> and I'm walking them through the scriptures. Right, I'm walking right. through the Constitution. It's listen, not, listen, they listen. They are irreligious. Know. They just yeah. don't want to be a part of the religion of injustice. Exactly. I, I, I remember uh, you know, offering the commencement at, at Colgate-Rochester uh, Crozier Divinity School up there, and I just said, you know, I'm happy people being whoever they want, but my problem is people. A lot of people out there have not met the Jesus that I know because the other there's another voice that's being so loud that's turning people off. And I, you know, I'm I'm not like I'm not trying to use this as an evangelical moment. I just think what you're offering them is actually at least they can meet someone who represents the faith, and I I I certainly um, I certainly appreciate that. I did want to have a chance to ask you about kind of the future and this Yale Center for Public Theology and Public Policy. Can you can you tell us a little bit about like how that happened well, and how you're what? I got in trouble years ago. Oh I did you? One morning and I asked the Lord if he would allow me to have the ability to touch at least ten to twenty ministers in my lifetime, clergy. Uh and hopefully be able to mentor them in a way that they would be able to do what I tried to do even better. Uh, Not to train them to be, uh, I'll put a label on it, but just to be Christian pastors and to take a serious look at at what, as I say, more than 2,000 scriptures in the Bible talk about how our faith and true evangelicalism have to be connected to what we do for the least of these and how we challenge systems. I mean, you know, I carry with me all the way I go, the Poverty and Justice Bible. It's the Bible that has all the scriptures marked and that some young folk one, one time cut all the passages out that had to do with love and justice and mercy toward at least the end. The Bible literally fell apart. So I keep that Bible hmm. with me. And when I opened my first class at Yale uh, for the center, and I'll tell you what it, the center is going to be doing, I had in a cellophane bag all of those scriptures cut out, and I had the Bible that they were cut out of, and I poured them out on the table and laid the Bible out. And some of the students literally started crying. And I said, this is what we do to the scriptures when we don't 
talk about the poor, and more importantly, be engaged in challenging the policies and the systems that create poverty and hatred and injustice. We literally cut the Bible to shreds. Mm. And oh, my God. God. And so but what was amazing to me in this center is <laughs> it's almost as though the Lord said, okay, uh, since you want this help train, I'm going to open it up, not for you to be able to train maybe 10 or 20, but maybe 200 to 1,000 over a period of time. And so I'm leaving the pastorate to be at the Center for Public Policy and Public Theology. I went there and, 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 and Yale invited us to come. And you know, there's history that Howard Thurman was at Howard University. Niebuhr was at Yale. And years ago in the 40s, they came together to develop a religious institute with the intentionality of raising up the clergy that would challenge Jim Crow through the lens of the uh, radical and militant love of theology of Jesus Christ. One of two of their students early on was Martin King and James Lofton. Wow. And a lot of people don't even know that history. And so this center, the Yale Center for Public Policy and Public Theology, sometimes they call it the Barber Center, is designed to take what I've tried to learn and study all these years and to put it in a center for training uh, seminarians, uh, uh, undergraduate students, to put together economists, theologians, biblicists, sociologists, public health leaders in the same room to examine policy, to look at policy, to create policy. Every two years, we're going to have a major, major forum right in the middle of the presidential election. What should really be the moral issues that should be a part of the presidential debate and the dialogue about who we are electing uh, to the various offices? We have a summer program to engage students uh, with through repairs of the breach with practical um, uh, placement where there are pastors actually engaged not only in pulpit ministry but in prophetic uh, social justice ministry in the community. Uh, this center, the goal is, uh, is that we eventually will develop into a full institute. We will offer courses. We will offer policy analysis. Uh, and as I said, undergraduates and graduate students, because what was interesting to me, Paul, is we got on campus. Uh, the undergraduate students called call us and said, we want to talk to you. Mm. At, at Yale. And I said, they want to talk to a country preacher from the South? Yes. <laughs> and I did a lecture this past spring. And it came out in the uh, paper that one of the young folk that came to the lecture said, I came there as an atheist. And then I heard this Jesus. And I'm, I'm, I'm not an atheist. I'm rethinking my whole... <laughs> I mean, this has happened this, this past um, spring. And when we started the class, we, you know, we were told that we might have a few students for the first one. So many students showed up that we couldn't even keep all of them. There's this hunger. And yes. in fact, my hope has been buoyed being among these, these young folks. So my work is going to be there and with repairs. I'm, I'm a full professor, uh, professor excuse me, of, of practical uh, 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 theology. And, and, and I said to them that I can't come in the academy and lead the work in the community because I would be undermining the very thing you, you, I'm coming to teach about. It has to be both and. It's kind of like a surgeon 
at a, at a school who teaches surgery on Monday and practices surgery on Tuesday, then teaches surgery on Wednesday and practice. And so that's the model that we're using at Business Center. We're one semester old. Uh, we've had tremendous, tremendous uh, 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 support. Uh, I hope to bring you up. We're going to do a special lecture on on, on Walter Rouson Bush and what his theologies ought to mean to us today. You know, I introduced the students, many of them who did not know about Walter Rouson Bush, did not know about the social gospel movement in one of my classes this semester. Mm. But I think every seminary. Well, I listen, this sounds so good, and Yale is so fortunate to have you be a part of its broader mission. Uh, this is extraordinary. Um, you and you know the history, right? You know that the history of Yale is that the former president, the very first president, was a apologist for slavery. And so 200 years later, to have this center at Yale, you know, and to be talking about developing even a master's of public policy and public theology, and, not, and I'm not going to, let me just say this, Paul, this is important. Because someone, when I when I came to the school, they said, well, he walks in the tradition, you know, of Dr. King. And I said, uh-uh, don't limit a person just because of their skin. I love Dr. King, I studied Dr. King. But this tradition goes all the way back to the prophets. It goes all the way back to the abolitionists, white and black. It goes all the way back to the social gospel movement. It goes all the way back to to even uh, women like you know Harriet Tubman and others. And, and, and I had to say to them, this is not about a center that will just deal with racism. This is about a center that will look at public policy through the deep wells of theology and faith and our deep moral convictions of both faith and the Constitution. All policy, right? mm, mm. all, all yes. policy. What we're doing at Interfaith Alliance now is really looking at, like, to look at American democracy, the project of achieving our country, as Baldwin said, and um, imagine the role that religion should be playing as opposed to what sometimes the role that religion has played, um, recognizing the good and also what still needs to be done better. And I, I just am so grateful to you and um, you know, for the wisdom of Yale with all its history, I think that that's part of the, that's also part of the story. Bishop Barber, thank you so much for speaking with us on State of Belief and for all that you are doing for our nation and the many, many people within it who you inspire and also who may not even know about you, but your work is touching them and their lives. So thank you so much for all of your wisdom and hoping all of us today. The Reverend Dr. William Barber II is president of Repairs of the Breach and co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. And that's all the time we have for this week's State of Belief. Starting with this episode, we're partnering with Religion News Service, the leading religion journalism organization in the country for distribution and expansion of the show. We hope the important conversations we produce each week will reach new audiences and contribute even more to the search for strategies and solutions to the very real challenges facing our nation. 
We need your help keeping the state of belief on the air. I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And you can also be part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with family and friends. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part both on and off the air. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. Now be sure to join us next week with June LGBTQI plus Pride Month well underway. We'll hear from an all-star group of faith and other leaders committed to taking part in the Faith for Pride campaign. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch on the State of Belief where religion and democracy meet.